live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sartre, and coming up, we're talking about a cosmic knockout, and of course, taking listener questions about all the amazing things in this universe. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along online or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about check your bias. But first, the news. Hey Space Cadets, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your Agent to the Stars. We've got an exciting show for you today where we talk about all the amazing things happening not on the Earth. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get your question on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Denham Springs, Louisiana, Lithuania, Portsmouth, UK, and more because Orange County, Sorry about your luck down there. Marysville, Washington, uh, a lot more places. But you know what? I didn't make a list this time, so it's not in front of me. It's in the chat. Just thanks for coming along, Space Cadets. Check out SpaceRadioShow.com for the links to the Twitch and YouTube live streams. I'm going to take questions that you send there, too. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped five minutes to show material tops. So get those questions in. Before I start taking calls, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And yes, uh, the big thing still in the news is exactly what I talked about last week, which is Comet Neowise, which is still getting brighter, still getting more visible. It is now visible, I believe, after sunset. The best time to view it is about an hour after sunset. Look in that western or southwestern sky. You got to be in the northern hemisphere, though, preferably mid-latitudes to catch it for our friends south of the equator better luck next time but it is it is getting brighter it is getting nicer we were worried a little bit last week because comets are just you know comets like what makes them brighter are their long tails and the tails come from the material inside the comet and the material in the tail is what's reflecting the sunlight and letting you see it So yes, the comet is getting closer to the Earth, but if it runs out of material to make a tail, then it won't be as visible because the comet itself is just tiny and dinky and boring and nobody cares. But that comet is nice and bright. It is getting bigger. It is getting brighter. So go check it out in the skies tonight. There are sky watchers around the world taking pictures of it. Uh, you know, check out the like the Neowise hashtag on Twitter. Uh, you'll just see image after gorgeous image of Neowise. But uh, the news story I really wanted to talk about is otherwise it's a relatively quiet week here in the universe. And uh, but there was something astronomers detected this white dwarf star that is traveling crazy fast a 900,000 kilometers per hour. That's 559,000 miles per hour through our Milky Way galaxy. That is faster than average. And uh, this thing is just booking. And a white dwarf star is the leftover star, uh, or the leftover remnant of a star like our sun. And so we got, we got to know, we see this white dwarf star. How did it get a kick? How did it get start moving so quickly? And we think it was part of a pair 
where one of the stars, like this star died or was near death. And then its companion went supernova, probably a type one supernova and went kablooey and stripped away the material of this star left behind the white dwarf and then just sent it flying uh, through the galaxy. What I love about this story, I mean, it's, it's a cute little story. It's not exactly earth shattering. What I like about this kind of story is it shows just how dynamic the universe really is. It shows just all the cool stuff happening in the universe that i mean we when we look at the night sky and something like comet neowise which uh thank you larry beckham one of the space cadets is informing me the closest approach is on july 24th so coming up soon will be closest approach to earth uh, but that's a very slow like it's over the course of weeks this comet is getting brighter and then going away and here we see a star a dead star traveling at 559,000 miles per hour. Think of the energies involved. Think of how chaotic and turbulent that event was to send this object, which is about uh, 40% the mass of the sun. So that's, that's quite a bit of mass. That's a hefty object traveling this fast. There are many reasons why I love astronomy and astrophysics. The awesomeness of everything we encounter out there in the universe is one of them. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. You know what? It's time to have a conversation. We've got some questions ready to go. In fact, we have a voicemail ready, hot. It's fresh. It smells great. Hey, Greg, can you play that tape? Hello, Dr. Sutter. My name is Cliff and I live in Houston. Arthur C. Clarke, when he was alive, was very interested in the possibility that mankind might someday tap into the vacuum energy of space. I was hoping you could break this concept down for us as only you can do and give us your opinion on whether or not this is a viable avenue of scientific investigation. Thank you. A super fun question, Cliff from Houston, Texas. Yes, it's a staple of sci-fi. It's a staple of talking about the future. When we think about energy sources, we're all like, yeah, like like we have solar power, but you know, a solar power isn't going to get us across the solar system. Uh, we think of nuclear power, but like, you know, if you're thinking about traveling from star to star, the amount of energy you need, uh, if you want to build a proper functioning galactic scale civilization, which who doesn't, you need a source of energy. You need a source of energy that's big and everywhere and ubiquitous and apparently infinite and it's just ready to go. In comes vacuum energy. For those of you who aren't familiar with the concept of vacuum energy, I'll break it down for you. Everything that has mass has energy, you know, E equals MC squared. So every particle that you're made of has some intrinsic amount of energy. And then there's all sorts of other energies floating around. There's potential energy, there's kinetic energy, there, there's chemical binding energy. But if you were to take a box and empty everything out of the box so that there is absolutely nothing left, you would have a box of pure vacuum, just zero, empty. That's what it means. It turns out and we discover this through the vagaries of quantum mechanics, that the vacuum of space-time itself has an energy. That the vacuum of space-time itself 
has energy. I know I just repeated myself, but that's, that's it's kind of a big deal. There is a energy associated with space-time itself, with vacuum itself. When you have nothing at all, there's an energy there. We call it the vacuum energy. How much vacuum energy is there? Well, that's slightly up for debate. The first take on it, when you say, hey, how much energy is in the vacuum? And you start running your quantum mechanical calculations, you get infinity. Like there's an infinite amount of energy in the vacuum. Okay, that seems weird. It's not necessarily wrong. It just seems a little weird. When you do some naive calculations, you get like ridiculously um, large numbers. And at first glance, it looks like, look, the vacuum of space-time has all this raw energy. You cannot tap into or use that energy for any useful purpose. Because physics, because physics, uh, like the thermodynamics of engines and efficiency and work that we think of in energy, like, oh, I need some energy so I can move around. I need some energy so my laptop will run. I need some energy. Oh, you need energy. That energy is really about differences in energy, differences in heat. The flow of energy is what's critical here, where energy is coming, is performing nuclear reactions. It is releasing some energy there. That energy is transformed into light. It hits the earth. That, that light gets, the energy from that light gets transformed into chemical binding energy, uh, which forms the basis of the food web and on and on and on. We're transforming energy and what we're doing is we're, transferring a lot of energy in the sun to like our stomachs and our movements and our sweat. Eventually that energy gets radiated out as heat from the surface of the earth and out into the void of space. So what matters is that there's a flow of energy, that you have a place that you can take energy from one place and put the leftovers somewhere else. You can transfer energy. That is key that you have a hot thing in it, like a hot side and a cold side. You can set up a flow of heat that is useful energy. You can get work done. The vacuum energy, because it's persistent and it's constant and it's the exact same thing everywhere, there are no differences. There are no changes. There's no difference there that we can exploit to turn into mechanical work that we can use to boil water or generate electricity. You can't do work on the vacuum of space in a thermodynamic sense. And so, yes, the energy is there in the vacuum, Yes, it might be infinite amount of energy in the vacuum. No, you can't use it because there's nowhere for you to put it. I know that's a little bit confusing. I mean, that, the whole topic of vacuum energy is just mildly mind-blowing. It's a staple of science fiction. Like, yeah, it's just, just do the vacuum energy and we're pretty good. That's not good enough. Vacuum energy isn't useful energy because you can't use it to get work done. Unfortunately, I have to take a break, folks. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. And you know what this show is brought to you by? This show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash pmsutter. This P is in Paul, M is in Matthew. Sutter like butter, but with an S to learn how you can keep the show going. I really appreciate it. I'll see you after the break. This week on The Bioneers. I don't really believe that the mandate is ever on the victim to forgive. But I do believe that there is an alchemy that occurs with a true apology, where your rancor and your anger and your hate releases when someone truly apologizes. 
Playwright activist author Eve Ensler, now known as V, offers her wisdom on transformational healing through an apology on Bioneers Radio. Saturday afternoon at 2.30 on WCBE Columbus. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions ready to go, but remember, you can join the conversation. Check out spaceradioshow.com for all the links. Once again, here we are every week. I've got more questions that I can possibly answer in a single episode. And so I'm going to try to answer as many questions as possible in a single episode. So we're going to start off with Edward Hidden on YouTube asking, is there anything a black hole can't consume? The only thing it can't consume is regret. Edward Hidden is also asking, do black holes consume dark matter? You bet ya. So dark matter is made matter. It's made of particles. It's stuff. It just doesn't interact with electromagnetic radiation. It just doesn't interact with light or charged particles. That's why it's dark. But black holes eat everything. They're made of gravity. They're objects made of gravity. They're objects of space-time itself. Anything, anything, anything up to and including dark matter that falls through an event horizon will get consumed by the black hole. Al Nalam on YouTube is asking, what about solar orbiters, images, and correspondence with the ground? Yeah, so uh, the European Space Agency is launching a, or I believe they have launched a, a companion to the Parker Solar Probe that's already up there in approaching the sun. Uh, the solar orbiter will do fill a role that the Parker Solar Probe doesn't. The Parker Solar Probe does have a camera on it, but it's not the greatest camera. Uh, the the solar orbiters uh, will be mostly um, pictures of the sun, invisible wavelength, and several other wavelengths. We're going to get some gorgeous pictures of, from the sun. It's not going to get as close to the sun as the Parker Solar Probe does. That's because you know the you know the camera will melt. So I really, really can't wait for that to start getting closer. It's going to take years to get down to the sun. You might think it's easy, by the way, to launch a rocket off the earth and then just drop it down to the sun. That's actually one of the hardest things you can do. And that's because the earth is orbiting the sun at an incredible rate. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it it does it's fast. It's really, really, really fast. So if you launch something off the surface, it's going that fast in orbit around the sun. How fast is the sun going in orbit around itself? Zero. Zero. So you have to go from this incredible speed, like 100,000 miles per hour or something fast like that, down to zero. That takes a little bit of effort. So we use gravitational assist. Uh, we use long looping orbits to slowly, slowly, slowly bring probes down closer to the sun. Uh, SAHM on YouTube is saying, question for Paul, that's me. What causes the curve in the tail of the comet? Is it because of its elliptical orbit, variation in speed? Yeah, so comet tails are actually very, very complicated things. These things stretch for millions of miles. They're gigantic. And they are caused by the sun heating up the comet itself. The comet itself is made of dust and ice, mostly ice. And when the heat of the sun hits it, the radiation of the sun hits it, the ice immediately turns to vapor. It carries away anything 
any bits of dust that happen to have with it, and then it gets flung out. And then the shape of the tail is determined by the solar wind, this stream of particles constantly coming off the sun. Uh, and then it's just kind of like blowing on a tail. So I like to imagine you ever take a dandelion, like a white dandelion, and blow on it and they go in a certain direction the comet is being blown by the radiation pressure and solar wind pressure of the sun. So you can get all sorts of interesting shapes because this thing is a million miles long. It's pointing away from the sun at all times, but the comet itself is also moving. So not all parts of the tail have caught up with you know, the new position of the comet, you can get interesting curves and kinks in the tail. And then also there can be just an event where there's an extra amount of outflow and it's, and there's a lot of stuff and you see that as like an, a knot or a feature in the tail. It's, they're absolutely fascinating objects. Arnetta Davis on YouTube is asking, I would like to know about the massive star in the Kinman Dwarf Galaxy called PL2P3P that has disappeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was this massive star and then it went away. That was a fun news story. Maybe that should have been my news story this week, but you know, too late for that. Yeah, so astronomers, we knew about this giant star. It was a normal, happy-go-lucky massive star near the end of its life. And then the next time we looked, it went away. So one possibility is that it was a supernova that we missed. Another possibility is that it got obscured by a lot of dust uh, and it became hidden uh, from our instruments. Another possibility is that it just rapidly dimmed for some reason known only to it, and so it's no longer detectable. Another possibility is that the star blew itself up or, or just collapsed uh, with no outward explosion or turned into a black hole with no outward explosion or, or tried to be a supernova but failed and we didn't catch it and now it's too dim. Something happened. Something happened. Uh, the space cadets are s suggesting we call it the unnova. You know, nova means new, so this would be not new. It's something going away in the night sky. Uh, who knows? It's a mystery. Uh, maybe it moved. I don't know. Maybe it just decided to shut off its lights and, and take a nap. Uh, but a star disappeared in our universe. You know, no big deal. No big deal. Um, stars disappeared all the time, we think. Tom Bach on YouTube is asking a question about the cosmic microwave background. Will we eventually not be able to see it at all, either by the universe expanding or by the light itself passing by the Earth? So the cosmic microwave background is this leftover light formed when the universe was only 380,000 years old. That radiation has persisted throughout the lifetime of the universe, all these 13.8 billion years. And we're getting it now. We're surrounded by it. If you could put on microwave goggles and then take away the sun, the sun emits a lot of microwave radiation, uh, you would see it. It'd be absolutely covering the sky. The cosmic microwave background is the single largest source of radiation in the universe, like 99.99% of all the light in our universe is due to the cosmic microwave background. As our universe expands, the cosmic microwave background gets cooler and gets redshifted. Right now, it's only at three Kelvin. That's three degrees above absolute zero. And it's in the microwave region. As the universe gets older over the course of the next few billion years, that temperature will get closer and closer and closer and closer to zero. The wavelengths will stretch out from the microwave down into the radio. And then 
be essentially undetectable because you would need a telescope the size of a galaxy to capture the light. That's how long the wavelengths would be. So eventually the cosmic microwave background will be undetectable. It's a very interesting thought experiment. Like will our future, future, future descendants know that they live in an expanding universe, know the history of the universe, because when you don't have something like the cosmic microwave background to anchor a lot of your cosmological evidence, it's it's hard to understand what you might understand about the universe. Thank you for all those amazing questions, space cadets. Uh, before we go, it's time for the blue shift. I'm Paul Sutter and you're listening to Space Radio and this is the blue shift my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. So yeah, national conversation all about COVID coronavirus has been for the past, like, I don't know, feels like we've been living with this for 10 years. And I see a lot of things. Currently at the time of this recording, uh, the Northeast where I live is relatively calm. We had a couple nightmare months right now, relatively calm. The rest of the country, especially the South and West, over the past few months, like the spring and early summer, was relatively mild, but now they're spiking and they're they're going off the charts. So there's a lot of conversations. There's a lot of conversations about why did this happen? What were the policy mistakes? What were were the attitude mistakes? Whose fault is this? Very common question to ask. And then we're also asking a lot of questions about should we return to school? If so, like what are the dangers? What are the risks? What are some policies? Like it's, it's just, it's a tough problem. I want to point out a couple things. One is cause and effect are extremely rarely simple. Nature is not simple. Take it from me. Spent you know a large chunk of my career trying to understand some small piece of nature. It was not simple. Nature is not simple. Nature and especially like human societies and diseases and civilizations and all this do not follow simple cause and effect things. What caused the spike of COVID in the Southwest? As far as I can tell from reading the discussion of epidemiologists, of modelers, and some, like no one saw this coming. We, we don't know what caused it. We don't know what caused it. There's no simple cause. And then a, a question like, do we reopen schools? There's no simple answer because there's no simple cause and, re- and effect relationship between a single policy or single choice and how that will affect the, the progression or regression of the disease. So I, I point that out as a general statement. This is much, much harder and nuanced than it appears at first glance. And so I'm asking all of us to take moments to check our bias. Whenever we come in with saying, aha, this is because of that, 90% of the time that's not from a considered reasoning, looking at the evidence, inference, 90% of the time it's because we come in with an assumption, we come in with a bias. And bias is one of the most destructive things you can have especially in science, but even in your daily life, it's coming in with a preconceived notion and then looking for answers to it. I just urge caution as we have these discussions about COVID, about coronavirus, that we check our bias at the door and we realize that life is a lot more complicated than we would prefer it to be. And unfortunately, this broadcast 
is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this Voyage of Space Radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the Space Cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio 90.5 FM in Columbus for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all the links. You can follow me on all social channels. My name is at Paul Matt Sutter. And of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission.